Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we are talking about The Endless, an indie sci-fi horror movie by Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, who also star in the lead roles. It's about two brothers who were raised in a cult and returned to their former home, a utopian hippie commune in the desert. Bizarre events begin to occur, tipping us into a world of trippy cosmic horror. So I love this movie and I was very happy to see uh, this requested on Patreon. This episode is sponsored by listener Carrie. So thanks a lot for uh, paying us to watch this movie, or in my case, rewatch. <laughs> I have watched all the films by these two filmmakers who are low budget and relatively obscure, but are definitely kind of earning a cult following because they make interesting, cool movies. And this film is like a bit hard to discuss without spoilers. So like for the first half of the episode, we will go spoiler free, but then we will discuss um, just everything that happens in the movie especially in the latter half, in the kind of second part of our podcast. You can watch this movie on Netflix, I think, in pretty much every country. It is not hard to find. So yeah, if you want to watch before listening, go watch that now. Morgan, you just watched this for the first time. I did. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I think I like it slightly less than you, which makes sense given our genre proclivities. Yeah, I love a horror movie. <laughs> yes. And I should also say that I did not have the... Uh, full sort of ideal experience of this movie because I was having horrible acid reflux last night. Just a little peek behind the curtain of an uh, overinvested <laughs> podcast. So I kept pausing it and then just like feeling terrible and then starting it again. And so I was watching it in these like little chunks, which is not how I would recommend yeah. consuming this movie. It's a bit of a kind of, you want to be immersed in the psychological experience. <laughs> yes. So I think that did take a, you know, a little something away from it, but in general, I was really impressed. As you mentioned, this has a very low budget, this film, although irritatingly, we were searching online to try to see if the exact number was public anywhere, and it does not seem to be, because yeah. I was really curious to know like, actually how much money this cost, because the director's first film, which is called... It's called Resolution, and it's it cost $20,000, which is nothing. <laughs> it is such a... I mean, you can tell watching Resolution that it's a very cheap film, but the concept is extremely good and it absolutely works because it's not a story that needs any kind of expense and it basically takes place in a single house. This movie is like a lot more ambitious, obviously, because, you know, it does have a relatively limited cast because it's about these two brothers who are going to visit this cult in the desert. But like, it does have really good visual effects and stuff like that. And it's like, I have no fucking clue how they paid for that because I cannot imagine that this had much of a budget either. Like we looked up interviews and they did also describe it as micro budget, um, which may be a slight exaggeration, but I wouldn't be surprised if this is like a million dollar movie. Yeah. Which for people who don't know anything about movie budgets is also nothing. Like $20,000 is truly like a penny, and, but a million dollars is still really, really low. And yeah. the thing that impressed me the most about this movie, which sounds like, and kind of is a little bit of backhanded compliment were the visual effects, but Given the fact that this obviously didn't cost very much, I was really, really impressed. Yeah. It both looks really good and also is very well thought out. Yes. And I was thinking a lot about the um, visual effects category at the Oscars, which typically you'll get like, not every year, but often there will be like one movie that is not a big budget action movie that gets nominated 
in that category. So like Ex Machina famously won the visual effects Oscar and everyone was like freaked out because it was so exciting. And that is a movie that obviously has very prominent visual effects in the Alicia Vikander uh, character, but it's not like an Avengers film. Right. And to me, that kind of visual effects work, which like I would put this movie in that category also, although it's not quite as accomplished as Ex Machina, like is so much more interesting and impressive to me. I than, mean, like, this is so much more deserving you know, though. Like Avengers Endgame got a nomination for visual effects and it's like what that movie had was money. It did not look good. <laughs> well, and this is what's so sort of bizarre to me about the current you know, situation with visual effects in Hollywood. And there are other people who know so much more about this than I, but these Movies that cost like $300 million, so much of that is being poured into the visual effects stuff. Somehow the visual effects workers are not being paid any money. Like that's a huge labor problem in Hollywood, right? Is that the actual people who work for visual effects studios are massively underpaid. And yet this like end product in these huge blockbusters looks terrible. Like it's really prominent. It looks like garbage. And so that's like one strand of what's going on. And then you have these much smaller movies that are managing to do like great work on obviously way less money. Like Parasite last year had a lot of VFX stuff in it, but it was not designed to be noticed. Like I think that house that they built was on a soundstage or was like in a location where the background needed to be completely changed, but it wasn't something that obviously you as the viewer were going to be noticing. And it was really, really well done But again, it's very subtle. And I don't understand how these two things are happening simultaneously. (laughs) Like, it makes no sense to me. And yet, here we are. As ever, if it's artists who care about what they do, who are being allowed to do something interesting, you end up with a better result. And in this film, obviously, it is very much a passion project by a couple of filmmakers who are doing literally whatever they want. And um, this is like a really great example of the low-budget bro film. We've got here a movie which is literally about a couple of actual bros. And a lot of it is sort of banter with these two guys sort of annoying each other in a very amusing and realistic way. And they're kind of going back to this settlement in the desert. And kind of you see a contrast between their current life where they basically have a quite shitty life where, you know, their childhoods were outside of like normal society so they probably don't have like the typical academic qualifications you need to get like a good job and they are working as house cleaners they're really poor they're depressed and they're having to go to loads of therapy sessions because they used to be in a ufo cult and when the younger more naive brother is like let's go visit just to see what's happening they do partly precipitated by their sent this like VHS video from the other cult members, which is pretty ominous, kind of suggesting that they're going to ascend to a higher plane, which is usually UFO cult for mass suicide. And so the younger brother is like, yeah, let's go back. I remember it being so nice there. And the older brother's like, it's a UFO cult, but I guess I've got to go to support you. <laughs> so they, they travel back to the desert and they're kind of met by these ominously cheerful cult members and it's, it's actually a pretty funny movie. Like you, you meet these people and you're like, yeah, they're pretty disturbing, but they're also like funny and amusingly disturbing, like the way they're behaving. And there are some quite idiosyncratic individuals that they meet when they're going into this uh, community. But you also do understand why the younger brother has such fond memories of this place, because clearly everyone is enjoying living there. 
and like they're have this happy communal lifestyle where they're like growing their own stuff for beer and they're just chilling and they don't have to care about the stresses of the outside world and money problems and stuff but there are also some unexplained phenomena you'll be shocked to hear yes i mean i think they do a really good job at you know all movies what the thing that all movies like this have to do which is like it just has to be off enough that you as the viewer are like what's going on yeah right like it's this, off enough this that feels you're like weird. get out but it's not off enough that they're actively or to be running away there's always like enough of a social excuse to keep them trapped in the weird situation yes and the sort of really bad stuff they don't start sort of observing that until like halfway through ish like the whole first half really clearly these people are really weird but they aren't particularly like threatening directly threatening yeah but i was amused watching it at how completely i was on the side of the older brother as an (laughs) oldest child (laughs) i was like well obviously he is correct (laughs) yeah i really don't feel like i mean maybe it's meant to be ambiguous but i think it's pretty unambiguous that like the older brother is being sensible and the younger brother is just fully misremembering the fact that they were in a cult (laughs) well and they sort of reveal at a certain point that the older brother has lied about some things and like the very end of the movie is him having to kind of like realize that he's been overly controlling of the younger brother but the whole time I was just like, no, <laughs> he's obviously being reasonable. And this other guy is just being completely unreasonable. I was just amused by the intensity of my response in that way. I mean, I have two younger brothers. Neither of them has ever been interested in joining a cult. Thank God. But like, it just really like the sibling dynamic struck me as the best thing about the movie from a like, character and theme perspective they're very funny and they're both like very annoying yes the bickering you were talking about is like perfect i mean that's how that is how siblings interact with each other brothers in particular and i think they did a really good job justin benson who plays the older brother they co-directed it justin benson wrote the screenplay and then aaron moorhead did the cinematography and then they both edited it But I think Benson did a really good job writing for both of them. Like, the characters suit them really well. So he's playing the older brother. He's the more responsible one. He's very handsome. And, like, you just get this sense of him being, like, you know, a responsible person who's kind of used to, like, dealing with this shit all the time. And Aaron Moorhead, like, obviously this also has to do with, like, the styling and the hair and whatever. But, like... He just looks like a younger brother. He just looks like an annoying person. (laughs) He's boyish. He's more boyish. (laughs) And that's obviously completely to do with performance too. But every time he like said something annoying, I was just like, you are irritating. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, I don't know anything about them as people, but like presumably in real life, they're both really responsible because you cannot make a well-organized micro-budget film without being like obsessively organized. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I don't know. I have, this is not in any way a comment on either yes. of these individuals, right? But, like, obviously, like, they know they're making this movie and that they're going to star in it. And so it's been crafted to sort yeah. of, like, suit their abilities as actors and the way they look, right? And I thought that they did a really good job at exploiting those things in a, like, self-aware way, which is really smart. Like, you definitely get some, like, movie star 
type people directing themselves in movies and you're just like that doesn't <laughs> like this doesn't work I don't know what you're doing and this like they know what they can do and part of the reason I mean they're both very good actors like I, they give great performances in this movie but part of the reason you wind up acting in your own tiny micro budget movie is that you don't need to pay yourself right yeah. so like they're part of this this like assets that they have making this movie and they're making use of themselves in that way so I thought that really worked They've made four they've made four movies together. I'm gonna to talk about the first one a bit later because it's got like an interesting connection to this film, but like they made this first low budget movie in like 2012. And they made a film called Spring in 2014, which is a monster romance and is really good and got some attention from uh Guillermo del Toro, unsurprisingly, and Paul Thomas Anderson, rather surprisingly. <laughs> because <laughs> he isn't someone I would have immediately connected with monster romances, but that's a good movie. Then they made The Endless, and then last year they made Synchronic, which is their first slightly higher budget movie, and stars Jamie Dornan from Fifty Shades of Grey and Anthony Mackie from Marvel. And like, so basically what they've done is they've made three movies, which are like very much about like two bros bantering, which is like Resolution, The Endless, and Synchronic, and one movie, which is a romance, so it's like a man and a woman. And um, they're really good at just getting that kind of two-person dynamic in the middle. Unfortunately, their most recent movie, which is actually the one which was more likely to make a breakthrough, isn't any good. The other ones are great. The the one with more money in it is just like very basic. And I was like, it's quite a disappointment. And also, as ever, Jamie Dornan, not an interesting actor at all. (laughs) So can you explain a little bit more like what went wrong about that film? Yeah, so like their other movies, it is a kind of sci-fi horror blend. None of their movies are like super scary horror for any listeners who are still on the fence about watching this movie. Like there are elements of The Endless which are scary, but it's not like, ooh, blood and guts or lots of jump scares. It's like psychologically interesting. And so they've got like Spring, which is an interesting sort of romantic drama with monster elements. And then they've got this new movie, Synchronic, which is, um, it's kind of like a time travel drug movie there's like a designer drug and the two main characters are a pair of best friends it's an interesting concept but like just the way it was executed was extremely basic and like over explainy the vibe was a little bit sexist i can't remember exactly how but it's like i didn't get that vibe from any of their other movies and it just felt like a real kind of intellectual and dramatic step down compared to their lower budget films which were just much more interesting and i don't know if it was just like a fluke or if it was because they had perhaps slightly more kind of input from like, I don't know, the equivalent of like an indie studio executive because they had more a bigger budget, that might have meant that there were more people telling them what to do. But either way, definitely not as good. That's interesting. Too bad. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess sometimes when you wind up with, you know, movie stars, etc., then you're no longer as in charge of your product whereas you definitely feel with this movie that like no one was <laughs> yeah they're like nobody was editing anything <laughs> not that it's like overlong or anything it's just so idiosyncratic yeah. that clearly this was the product of one or two in this case brains so i think we might as well talk about spoilers the kind of metaphysical concepts behind this film kind of gradually become apparent in the second half of the movie Um, So the first half is like a nice slow burn where you get introduced to all the characters and um, settle into the sort of unsettling nature of the location. And then you start getting like little visual cues, like there's a weird kind of atmospheric phenomenon that means that there's like two or three moons in the sky. And there are these strange sort of 
apparition effects that mean that there's sort of weird bubbles in the air, mirroring effects, that sort of thing. So you get the impression that there is like pockets of strange magic effectively in the forest, um, in the desert. And also there's this really cool ritual that like the cults do together, which is one of my favorite parts of the movie where they have this like long rope, which it clearly is just being taken up a hill by one of the cult members and like tied to something. And then the challenge is like people individually go and pull on the rope until they're tired. A classic like stupid cult team building exercise. But because it's at night, it looks like this rope is just going off into the nothingness of space and it's just this endless rope. And they play this game and you realize that there is no one at the other end of the rope, you know? And it's just like very effectively spooky and it kind of gives you this idea of like, you know, when you are in the desert or somewhere with no kind of unnatural light, you do get much more of a sense of kind of the emptiness of space. And that's sort of training your brain into being in the right zone for a cosmic horror story, which this movie very much is. As Morgan reminded me, it starts with an H.P. Lovecraft quote, who is obviously the original king of cosmic horror. Extremely problematic guy. His work has been reworked and re-influenced in many more uh, better directions since then. But kind of, he is known for telling these stories about like this terrifying, epic, unknown, which is like dangerous and scary. And the kind of two routes that people generally go with that is either the sort of rather literal, oh, there's like a tentacle beast from another land, or the more uh, metaphorical, which this movie definitely is, where it's like there is kind of an entity in the desert here, but we don't explicitly see it. There's like different characters who are interpreting it in different ways. And it's definitely kind of got like a religious angle because it's a cult and there's various other characters who have experienced it. But um, as the film progresses, you kind of realize that this entity is causing time loops in various different parts of the desert. And they are loops of differing lengths and you can get stuck in them. And there are people all through this area who are stuck in their own individual loops and are like gradually going mad or like stuck in really weird and disturbing situations. So there's this one really short loop where it's literally just like about two seconds of this guy who's clearly from like the 19th century or something and is just in this tent. And all he can do is like move across the tent, scream and then go back. And it's just really conceptually very disturbing. And he's clearly been just doing this for like 200 years. And then there's kind of other characters who are just like drifters or they live in like a house nearby who are stuck in like a few days. And one of them is, I'm not sure if you knew this, Morgan, if I mentioned it before, but like when they go to visit these two guys, there's like a guy who is, he's like a drug addict and his friend who's gone there to help him dry out. And there are these two friends who are stuck in a house and their loop kind of is them arguing for a few days and then setting the house on fire and then the loop restarts again so they have a memory of this and they've just been doing it for who knows how long but that house is the setting of the first movie so like the filmmaker's first movie resolution is literally just that one time loop and then they decided to expand the concept and they clearly put like a lot of work into um making this a really coherent setting um, there's a point where like the kind of the camera zooms out and you see visually like all these bubbles across the desert where people are in separate time loops and you realize that like the cult itself is one long like kind of 10 year loop that they've returned to and they have to try and escape it's just like it's very very kind of interesting and well executed riff on that concept and that they sort of 
or one of them kind of runs into this one guy who explains that if the like creature thing who's controlling this when he decides that it's your time to sort of start again he winds up killing you and that it's easier if you just do it yourself to sort of restart the thing so Justin the older brother had sort of presented them and been afraid of them as some sort of like death cult and the younger brother was like there was never any proof of that like where did this come from and it kind of is true but not in the way that he he had sort of presented or thought that it might be the case but it's more disturbing than yeah (laughs) you initially think in the sort of first part of the movie and so like this guy who they run into has a much shorter loop than the people in the cult so he's like constantly killing himself which is alarming but uh basically the people in the cult are just like this is great we worship the creature yeah, we're just like, like hanging like, out forever this is like a religious thing yes and they get to hang out for a long time whereas everyone else that they encounter has a much shorter period of time to be dealing with this so it's way more torturous to have to be going over and over and over and over again. It's a great concept. It's really well executed. It's very disturbing. I think the one like plot area where it doesn't really work is the guy in the tent, which is really well done and alarming. The younger brother is the one who like finds him and looks inside and sees what's going on. Although the movie shows that place from the outside a couple times before you get the like full Mm -hmm. picture and he's obviously like incredibly disturbed and like runs away and then shortly after that tells the older brother like yeah I've decided to stay and I was like I don't think that if you had just seen that your reaction would be anything other than like we need to get the fuck out of here yeah immediately (laughs) and that was the one moment where I felt like the script was a little bit more... Actually, no, there was one other moment. The script was a little bit more like, we have this cool thing to show you, and we're going to do it, as opposed to like working from the characters and how they would actually react to things. The other, the one other one was the burning of the house in the loop you just mentioned from the other movie, which seemed like such an unpleasant way to die. Yeah, I also, when I was watching that, I was like, this is like the worst way you could do this. Like if you, it feels like there should be more of a sort of explanation as to why they're not using another method because it's like, that is very horrible. And they have a bunch of guns. Yeah. Those people, they could just shoot themselves. And it felt to me like the filmmakers wanted to show a house on fire and be like, oh oh my God, he's burning himself to death. And it's like, well, but if you have to die all the time, why pick like the worst way to do it? (laughs) That just seems, it just seems like, mm. and so there are a couple moments like that where again, it felt like the spectacle was kind of driving the movie as opposed to logic. But for the most part, I think the script is pretty tight and they clearly have, as you say, like thought through the logistics of how all this stuff works like incredibly thoroughly i'd be interested to know if they are gamers like i mean chances are they're probably gamers (laughs) you know but um it definitely felt there were definitely kind of video game elements of it like in a really good way so like in terms of the world building as they kind of discover the mystery of this desert they pick up kind of a lot of physical cu- physical clues. So it's sort of, you know, they're left photographs 
by the entity and like there's a scene where you see like this looping video where there's like a video camera which is like filming itself and filming these men in like an infinite loop and then it gets flung across the sky because like the entity is annoyed by potentially us the viewers seeing the video and there's also this kind of locked cabin which is just full of all the decades and decades of evidence of people who have tried to come here and figure out what's happening so it's like there's loads of physical clues and that definitely felt like when you're playing kind of one of those sort of investigation games and it felt like it would definitely work well in that in that zone and it was kind of made me curious if either they're very into that subgenre or maybe if they have like at some point worked in video game writing but probably not because they probably would have talked about it but um they'd be good at it (laughs) if they if they if they decided to do that (laughs) Yeah, I read some interview with them on Collider, I think. I'll try to find the link and put it in the show notes, where basically we're, you know, talking about the ending and explaining the themes and stuff, which normally is not something I would be interested in because I don't want things explained. But they were clearly very, like, eager and happy to talk about all the explanations of things, which, you know, made the tone different. But one of them... I can't remember which, said, which I thought was interesting, that, like, a lot of, you know, critics, etc., had called the movie Lynchian. And he was no. like, I hadn't seen like any Lynch when it's we also made this. Like, not Lynchian. Well, really. I, I mean, I've seen one David Lynch movie, yeah. so I am not an expert either. But I can kind of get where that's coming from in terms of some of the like eerie images, right? Or like there's this like uncanniness to some of the visual effects stuff that we were talking about, like mm-hmm. the the rope going into the sky and there's nothing there, or the the tent with the guy running back and forth is definitely like. There's an explanation for it in the movie, but just the image is very unsettling in yeah, a way. The, that, like, the individual imagery is really good in this. And I think that that is probably where that mm-hmm. that word is coming from, from critics. But what he said, and I think that, that I mean, he clearly is right because he made the movie. But everything in the movie has an explanation. Like, there's nothing... Because he had then gone on and like read about Lynch and watched some Lynch movies. Like it's not dream logic. It is very concretely like everything is explained. And I think that that is, there are like pluses and minuses to that, right? Like on the one hand, it is satisfying to be able to watch it and be like, oh, I now see how all of this fits together. And there's like a satisfaction to understanding how the plot moves. But on the other hand, there's a reason that people love David Lynch movies. Yeah. And it's because the sense of just like, ambient horror that you get from some of that stuff that isn't explained is I think in a way more potent than being like oh I now understand all of this and it's all been resolved right and also having like a really tight explanation definitely kind of puts it more in the time travel movie um, category than in the cosmic horror category because kind of part of the appeal of cosmic horror is that there isn't a really clear explanation which is why it's scary yes so one of the problems I was having with the movie watching it I mean problem is kind of too strong a word but whenever I watch a movie like this I really want it to have like an idea that it's about in order for me to really feel like satisfied and there are definitely horror or supernatural movies that just don't have that and are still good but like I think that to get up to like the plane of really good ones that there has to be some like big thematic thing so for instance I remember seeing It Follows when that was out you know, a few years ago now. And I think that movie is like incredibly, incredibly well made. But I think that I don't think there's like an animating idea. I think that it follows it. is very overrated. I am a rare horror fan who's like, it's no. Yeah, see, that's a, again, I think that movie's better than you do, which is <laughs> unusual for us. 
But, like, that movie clearly has some ideas and themes, but, like, I don't think there's a central, like, big thing, and that was kind of my problem with that movie. And in this one, I was kind of feeling the same thing, and I was like, am I just not getting it? Like, what's going on? And then they basically articulate it at the end, where the younger brother basically says, he's talking about, like, how horrible and repetitive their lives in the outside world are, and he's like, well, how is that any different from in here? And, like, at least here, I get to, like just hang out and not worry about stuff and like be with these people I like. And I was like, Oh, it's about like capitalism. <laughs> and like, you know, yeah. they should have basically shown like a montage of more identical days at the beginning of the film. And then we would have had that idea like in our brains. Yes. And I think, I feel like there could have been more of that somehow, like what you just said, but then also there probably could have been a way to, deal with the repetition within the desert space of the movie in a way that could would have been like more experimental and weird and ominous than they do in the movie so like you do get these sort of individual images and moments that are really unnerving and disturbing but most of the film is not really that there's a lot of sort of just like pleasant cult stuff yeah <laughs> and i think it's a little bit imbalanced and obviously you have to have the pleasant cult stuff so that you kind of get lulled into the sense of like they seem nice but something's a little bit off but it felt to me like the script just wasn't quite ambitious enough to sort of really dig into the like ideas that they seem to be like trying to get at and i think that that would have been where the movie could have jumped up to another level of like greatness as opposed to being something that's like good but promising but also they had not made very many movies and didn't have any money so that's you know I get it but uh it just felt like the ideas weren't totally fully cooked I don't know if you agree I agree that it would have been more effective like thematically if they showed more of how repetitive their their days were at the beginning but on the whole I just think it's a really good movie and kind of a, a classic sort of lesser discovered gem of the type that it's satisfying to discover and be like yeah here's so here's a good movie by some interesting filmmakers so i hope make some more movies um i think it's not quite as good as donnie darko but it reminds me of donnie darko in a lot of ways that's interesting i have not seen donnie darko since i was i mean probably six, like 12 16 <laughs> yeah. i suddenly saw it at a sleepover at a friend's house which is yeah the Place where you should see Donnie Darko. That is a very millennial sleepover film. <laughs> oh, yeah. But that makes sense as a comparison from my, like, vague recollections. I mean, you presumably have more of a memory of it since yes. you made that comparison. I would not. So why don't you explain further? Um, well, I mean, in the literal kind of sense, there's sort of a time vortex element to Donnie Darko. But I guess just like kind of tonally, it's quite similar because it's got this combination of like cosmic weirdness and spookiness without being a really traditional horror movie and also being kind of very based around quite authentic interactions between normal seeming people. I feel like Donnie Darko is more... I mean, Donnie Darko is more of like a drama drama. Well, I think it's more... um like stylized yes. and almost campy. Yes. Like I definitely remember Jake Gyllenhaal in that being very put on. Yes. Right? 
Donnie Darko is a little weirder. Yeah. Yes. Whereas this and like the style of the shooting of Donnie Darko is very more formally strict, I suppose. Whereas this is a lot of handheld stuff, which I think is designed to kind of mirror the performances, which are all pretty naturalistic. Um, The other actors in this movie are really good. Also, we should say, I don't think we've mentioned them. I recognized there's a woman named Callie Hernandez who plays one of the cult members who I definitely seen in stuff. And I don't think I recognized anyone else. Yeah. I mean, it's clearly like people you've met in LA kind of roles. Cause I was yes. like, Oh, I, I looked her up as well. And I was like, Oh, I've seen her and stuff. And it's like, Oh, she's got like a minor role in like La La Land and Alien Covenant. And it's like, okay, well sure. She's good. <laughs> but I yeah, mean, like each of have... the individual cult members are very distinctive and like very fun and very real. Yes. And I think that's another like, testament to the filmmakers that like obviously there are so many talented actors out there who just haven't like become movie stars on the other hand i can think of a lot of indie movies where they had to cast people who weren't going to cost them very much and uh (laughs) the acting was not very good and these actors all just feel really convincing and not sort of like they're acting for the I mean, camera, it's one of those know? things where you can sort of sense when you see like a creative partnership like this or like a group of people who make a lot of work together. It's like you can kind of sense like when talented people kind of basically become friends with each other and like know how to work with each other, which is kind of different from, you know, most indie filmmakers where it's like you are trying to make a movie and you have to go and like find people to cast. And like in your first movie, you don't necessarily know how to work with people socially as a director. Like there was a lot of different skills that come together. Um, but I, I was interested to see that Justin Benson was a producer on She Dies Tomorrow, which is a film that came out this year and is a very interesting movie. Um, it's by Amy Simetz or Amy Simetz, who makes loads of kind of, she, she does like dozens and dozens of low budget movies. She's made a lot of horror films um, and you'll probably recognize her because she's done like various projects that are like more, money projects so like she did the girlfriend experience with steven soderbergh she was in alien covenant she was in uh, pet cemetery last year and she used her paycheck from being in pet cemetery to direct and star in this film called she dies tomorrow which is this kind of psychological thriller um, which is kind of about being depressed and trapped and suicidal and having addiction issues and she plays this woman who has the same name as her. It's a character named Amy. And she has this premonition that she's going to die the next day. And it's not just a premonition. It's a sense of, it's a sense of kind of absolute spiritual certainty. And it's very disturbing. Like it's a very alarming concept. And this causes her to like immediately backslide into alcoholism. And she tells some of her friends who obviously don't believe it, but it turns out this is a kind of contagion where like everyone she tells, like they also get like a premonition that they're going to die tomorrow. So it's like, it becomes this like series of characters that we meet who all have this same, like really disturbing premonition. They don't see what's going to happen. They just know they're going to die the next day. And it's kind of apocalyptic. And that film also stars like a lot of really excellent character actors who are rather more famous than the people you see in The Endless but it's also like a community of people who are clearly friends in real life and like to make interesting projects and like to make disturbing projects and are interested 
in making sure that every character, no matter how small, feels really interesting and real. And it's like, that is that is in the zone. And I was interested to note that Justin Benson was in some capacity involved in that. Yeah, I saw that on Wikipedia last night and was intrigued by that connection as well. I mean, I haven't seen that movie yet. It's on my list of 2020 films to catch up with. I remember when it came out and all the film critics on Twitter were just like, oh God, oh God, like this is <laughs> this is too close to home in 2020. But uh, it feels like a, even having not seen it, it feels like a really natural connection yeah. from this. I mean, horror is like the only genre that's booming in Hollywood and like American film Right now, obviously, this is not a yeah. Hollywood movie that we're talking about, but, like, there's a reason it got bought and, like, actually released in theaters, and then Netflix bought it basically everywhere. There's a big audience of people who are willing to watch a movie that is very cheap and has no one you've heard of in it, as long as it's effective and spooky. <laughs> yes. Like, there just isn't an equivalent sort of scene for this kind of low-budget movie in basically any other genre. Yeah, you cannot go to a low-budget rom-com festival. <laughs> <laughs> no. And like, obviously, individual movies in other genres are being made at really low budgets and like their little indie dramas on micro budgets at film festivals all over, all over the place. But it's just not the same thing. Um, and like rom-coms are a great comparison because like that's my favorite genre and it's impossible to get them made. And when they are made, they're generally not very good. And they're just like Netflix is the only place that's really doing it in a substantial way whereas it feels like there's just like a really rich zone for horror at the moment which is partially the industry deciding that and partially that like there's like people will watch anything <laughs> why might that be impossible to say what in the world is you know making people want to watch hor horrifying things at the moment but like my brother who i've mentioned before who's sort of like older gen z is like not a movie person, but he and his friends all watch horror movies all the time. And that seems to be a cultural yeah. phenomenon, which is kind of interesting because that was not something that I was doing at all at that age. So yeah, I didn't watch horror movies until about five years ago. Yeah. And now I'm like obsessed. <laughs> so, <laughs> But that's kind of more surprising to me given your other interests yeah i mean i just was easily scared and didn't like scare being scared whereas now yeah. i'm still easily scared but i love to be scared <laughs> <laughs> but also i mean when we were teenagers it was like the big horror fad was like slasher movies. yeah it was all like scream and stuff yeah. like that which i mean i had obviously i had seen horror movies and like i was a little goth so like i love vampire stuff but the idea of like voluntarily being scared was completely alien to me I was like, why would anyone do this? I feel like the ones that I was most aware of were like what I would have associated with a horror movie was like Saw. Yeah. Like the Saw movies. Yeah, which I'm never watching I the Saw franchise. No. Like, <laughs> no. And so, you know, 16 or whatever, I was like, no, no fucking way. Like, I'm not watching that. But we both saw Donnie Darko, so, you know. We did. I mean... That was different. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was the pretentious millennial sleepover uh, choice. Yes. I mean, I would never have conceptualized that as a horror movie. At that I age. was terrified of Donnie Darko, so I knew instinctively. That <laughs> I found that I, film very frightening. I must have found it kind of disturbing 
I more remember us all kind of giggling about it and also <laughs> being like, Jake Gyllenhaal's hot. Like, that was definitely the biggest reaction was about Jake Gyllenhaal. And, but just being kind of like, wow, that was deep. Like, that, you know, like, because we were 15 or 16 or whatever. And, you know, then listening to Mad World on a loop. Like, that was the... Yeah. I, oh, yeah. The, the, the peak of the Mad World period. I remember uh-huh. that. <laughs> but anyway, The Endless. Good movie. We both enjoyed. If by some reason you've decided to listen to this whole episode without... Uh, watching the movie I think you can probably still watch it like we've obviously spoiled it for you but it's a great film and I can also recommend Resolution and their uh, monster romance movie Spring yeah I'm definitely gonna check those out at some point Um, and this is as we said widely available on Netflix basically everywhere and um, if your territory does not have it I'm sure you can still find it yeah I think it might even be like non-exclusive and it's on other streaming services possibly anyway so next week we will be concluding the Lord of the Rings trilogy with Return of the King. Very exciting. Yeah. We wanted to get it for you in time for like the holiday season. Um, Cause we know that's like a Lord of the Rings time for a lot of people. Yes. I have not seen Return of the King since college. So I am very yeah, excited. I mean, me neither. I've not seen that in well over a decade. So yeah, that will be fun. Thank you again to Carrie for sponsoring this episode. Uh, this was a movie I'd sort of meant to see for a while because Gav liked it so much and I just hadn't gotten around to it. So great excuse to watch. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find my new YouTube channel at Behind the Seams on YouTube. It is all about costume design on film. And if you want to hear more about my thoughts on what does and doesn't count as a David Lynch type film, I did an episode on The Room, which surprisingly did actually include that topic. So, (laughs) (laughs) All right. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast. And our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.